0: Mike, welcome to E3, and today we are going to continue our series on the New Testament book of Ephesians, this wonderful poetic letter written by this guy named the Apostle Paul to the first century church of Asia Minor. However, before we get back into the text of Ephesians, I actually want to start by talking about the nature of human discovery, especially when it comes to like these big discoveries in human history that we now take for granted without realizing that their arrival in the moment changed entirely how we understand and navigate this world. A few examples. First, obvious one, electricity. Who likes electricity? (laughs) Air conditioning, I heard an amen earlier for that. I mean, talk about something that we take for granted, right? But the discovery and the growth in our understanding of how electricity works throughout the 18th and the 19th centuries truly transformed. Everything about how we live. I mean, to an extent that's almost impossible for us to fathom. Technologically, it transformed life itself. We're talking about refrigeration, robotics, light, navigation. Even our understanding of what it means to be a human being changed because of this. The realization that our brains, our nervous systems function and communicate through electrical impulses. Think about that. This discovery gave us an insight into what it means to be this, a human being. Simply put, this moment of discovery, this capacity to understand and harness electricity reshaped our world. Another one, the discovery of the antibacterial properties of penicillin, perhaps the most overlooked but critical discovery in human history, which you might ask, why? Well, let me ask you this. Who's had tonsillitis, bronchitis, or pneumonia and then not died from it. Raise your hand. All of y'all be dead in the Oregon Trail, let me tell you that. (laughs) This discovery, this is its legacy. I mean, these illnesses were untreatable and often life-threatening just 100 years ago. Isn't that mind-boggling? And yet, with penicillin, they became curable in a blink of an eye, overnight. Leading to these dramatic advancements of antibiotics, life saving vaccines, the upending of our entire understanding of medicine. Okay, last example molecular structure of DNA. Who's thought about this today? <laughs> most of us definitely do not think about this in our daily lives. In fact, most of us grew up with a pretty innate understanding that this is the building block of life, right? We all saw Jurassic Park, yes? If you didn't, Pastor Mike would like to have a word with you after the gathering. Oh, my gosh, you uncultured swine. Now, the discovery, the discovery of DNA's double helix in 1953, I mean, truly reshaped our world. It birthed molecular biology, as we understand it. And it was truly this world-altering scientific milestone. In a moment, it transformed how we comprehend the most fundamental level of life. And now today, all scientific research pretty much is engaged in this in some way. It engages in genetics, at least on some level. From pinpointing the causes of disorders, like why Pastor Scott is the way he is, (laughs) all the way down to identifying genes and how they affect behavior, to criminal justice, forensic science, how we catch people through DNA sequencing. All of this comes back to this small discovery, genetics. DNA, none of these things existed before that moment. And each of these examples, I think, are amazing in their own right. I think they're all very profound. But what really fascinates me about them is actually how each didn't change our world immediately. Instead, each had these long periods of time between their discovery, where we learn something new about our world, and then the process by which we actually started acting upon what we learned. In some cases, this took generations for these revelations to actually be put into practice in a tangible way. And in that, I think these exemplify a broader pattern within the human condition. This gap that always seems to exist between the moment where we learn something is true and that knowledge begins to impact our lives that new knowledge actually begins to transform how we live in the world. So I find this so interesting, right? A major discovery reveals in an instant something that's always been true even if we've been unaware of it, some unknown but fundamental reality of our universe. Yet, that head knowledge alone doesn't actually produce change, does it? No. For change to occur, we also seem to need this slow process of wrestling doubting, and reflecting, to actually accept reality as it is, to open our minds to this new understanding and to actually get changed by the implications and the possibilities that they reveal in these moments of discovery, for them to actually start impacting how we navigate our world. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? And beyond big discoveries, I mean, I'll just tell you, that's also true for my life. I can know something new, but for it to actually change me, that is a much much longer process than an instant thing that happens. This is seemingly just the nature of human change. This gap between knowing a truth and living into it, that long, steady work of bridging our heads with our hearts and our feet and our hands and our actions in the world. Anyone know what I'm talking about? And I start here because in today's section of Ephesians, Paul is going to engage this gap directly. When it comes to the context of Christian life transformation, exploring how Jesus invites us into this profound discovery about the very nature of our universe, revealing a truth that's always been true and yet simultaneously is so all-encompassing, so world-shattering that it requires a lifetime to actually unravel its implications and for it to sink down into our bones, into our identity, into our actions and our lives in this world. That's where we're going to go today. But first, recall where we've been so far in Ephesians. Thus far, for three chapters, Paul's been retelling Christ's story, laying out how through Jesus, God's begun restoring all of creation and drawing all people into this new, united, divine family of renewed human beings living under the cosmic lordship of Christ. However, in today's text, what we're going to see is that Paul's going to change course, actually kind of dramatically. He's going to shift his focus through this prayer, that he uses as a transition from retelling Christ's story to pretty direct ethical exhortation, which is actually going to comprise the entire second half of this letter, shifting from abstract cosmic theology (coughs) to real, tangible, practical instruction about how we are to live after we embrace Christ's cosmic story of renewal as our own. And it's a beautiful but tragic prayer that he uses here for this transition. And that's because I want you to remember, in the previous section, Paul ended his writing by marveling about how God continues to work through him despite him being where? Does anyone remember? In prison. A Roman prison cell awaiting his imminent execution. A reality that led Paul to express some deep concern over how this might negatively impact these communities that he helped plant and that love him. Which isn't abnormal. Paul actually wrote several of his letters in the New Testament from jail. However, this is what's interesting about Ephesians. You see, usually when Paul has a reflection like this, a reflective moment about his incarceration, he follows it with some sort of expression of hope that's meant to uplift the community he's writing to, praying that his circumstances are changed and he'll be able to visit them again soon. This is Paul's pattern. This is what he does in almost every other prison letter. But he does not do that in Ephesians. And that's because, as best we can tell at this point, Paul's fate, again, his imminent execution at the hands of the Roman Empire, was sealed. You see, what I believe is that in this letter, Paul knows that his end is near. There are no delusions about him coming to visit these people ever again. And thus, rather than making empty promises, Paul instead prayerfully points them elsewhere for encouragement and hope in the midst of this sorrowful news. We pick up in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, where Paul writes this. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through so, kneeling before God, Paul begins with what in Greek is actually a pun, fun fact. It's two Greek words that share the same root. He reminds these Ephesians that all human families, or patria, come from the same source, God the Father, or Potter. ha, ha, ha. You guys got the joke? <laughs> Paul was a funny guy, let me tell you. <laughs> in doing so, this is what I think Paul's trying to do. He's trying to ground the opening of this prayer. In one of Ephesians' central themes, this reminder that everything and everyone comes from one creator who is actively at work in all circumstances throughout the cosmos. In other words, Paul's like, I know this hurts, but remember that no matter what happens to me, regardless of how things look or feel, regardless if you never see me again, you have to remember one God reigns and created this entire universe. And that God is at work in the business of creating peace, even in the hardest circumstance. And with that reminder, front and center, Paul begins what I think is one of the more beautiful prayers of the New Testament. Praying that God would strengthen their inner being, which in Greek refers to one's will, really one's gut. That deep, internal space that directs our thoughts and actions, even when we're not thinking about it an inner strengthening that Paul describes as coming from this free, infinite well of divine power and assurance that's always available to be drawn upon by Christ's disciples through prayer. In other words, what Paul does is he urges them to through prayer find the strength that only comes by surrendering to God's spirit, to through prayer develop an inner gut level trust that God will keep working within them even when the road gets hard. A gut level knowing that no matter what, they can know for a fact that God is still growing Christ's story in them, which has already taken root in their lives. I mean, it's such an uplifting image, is it not? It makes sense when you think about it. As the conclusion for Ephesians' first half, you see, Paul's laid out Christ's story which they've already entered into. And now he's just reminding them that living into that story with all of its implications will take a commitment and a perseverance and a trust and a decent amount of time, really their entire lives, to start unpacking. And he's urging them to continue that work, to remember that becoming new human beings through Jesus isn't just about acquiring head knowledge. Like we get the right facts and boop, I'm a new person. No, letting Christ's story saturate our identity, our daily life. Y'all, that's a lifelong experience of spirit-led transformation. For Paul, it's one that's always grounded in this one central, fundamental truth of the gospel story. He continues, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in what? Love. May have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that has worked within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever can I get an amen? amen. Woo, Paul's throwing a fastball. Kneeling before God, Paul actually begins this beautiful prayer. He continues it with this reminder that the source and the object of divine strengthening our understanding and experiencing of one thing, and that is God's love. That is where our inner strength comes from. That is where we grow in our knowledge of. That is apparently, according to Paul, the skeleton key that's going to unlock this whole Christian life. In particular, though. It's a specific kind of love encapsulated within this Greek term agape. Let me hear you guys say agape. Agape, agape. and I've taught on this before. It's a, you're probably sick of me talking about it all. You see, this is really important, though. We have to understand what this word means because in the New Testament Greek, it recognized different kinds of love, right, for friends, family, partners, etc., and thus it used different words for each. English, however, which is an incredibly stupid language, uses the same word for all of it. The same word love is used for me saying that I love my wife and me saying I love tacos, even though I mean different things when I say each of those sentences. And if you don't, you need to talk to me after the gathering. (laughs) It's important that we understand that when love appears in Scripture, it's often meaning different things. We have to understand that because we don't know what type of love is being referenced in a text. We're probably going to miss its meaning, and that is especially true for agape love because for many of us as Western people, when we hear love, we think of emotions, right? Warm and fuzzy feelings, butterflies in the tummy. Am I correct? But that is absolutely 100% not what agape means. When Christ tells us to agape our enemies and those who persecute us, He's not telling us to have warm and fuzzy feelings about the people who might crucify us on a Roman cross. He is talking about something else. He's talking about this agape form of love, which is not about emotions, it's about one's will. It's a love grounded in our worldview, not our emotions, it's a love defined by commitment, the radical, unwavering commitment to look at human beings as having inherent dignity and value and then from that choosing to seek their good no matter what regardless of their response or our judgment of them that is a powerful concept and agape is the love that is most associated with god in the bible In the Gospel of John, we read that agape describes how God so loved the world that he sent his only son not to condemn it, but to save it. In Matthew, Jesus says that agape is found perfected in the God who sends rain upon the wicked and the good alike, who loves his enemies, who looks at humanity and commits to seeking our good, regardless of who we are, what we've done, or how we've lived in this life. Which is good news, am I right? That's the love. That Paul is talking about here. And according to him, what the gospel is fundamentally about is that Jesus revealed this agape love, not just being a characteristic of God, but as being the bedrock reality of this entire universe of which God created, which, am I right? Paul describes the breadth of God's love in this text throughout creation, how wide, long, high, full, deep, all to say that Jesus revealed agape as embedded in the very fabric of reality, that God's agape permeates everything, that there is not an inch of our entire infinite expanding created cosmos that is not touched, sustained by, and saturated with God's divine self-giving love. And if that isn't mind-blowing enough, Paul gets even more out there by stating that apparently This all-encompassing cosmic love of God isn't distant. It's not abstract. That somehow, paradoxically, it is both infinite and as close as our breath. Something that we can intimately know and freely experience right here, right now. Because notice, Paul's prayer here wasn't for the Ephesians to do something, to acquire or earn access to this divine love. He wasn't saying, hey, just wait till you die. Then you'll experience God's infinite agape love. No, he says that this love of God that sustains the universe is for them to further grasp onto now, which implies that they are already in possession of it. Apparently, this love is something that he call, is calling them to in greater and greater degrees. Realize that they are already rooted in, that only their acceptance and awareness of its reality can grow, not its presence, not its availability, strength, or amount in their life. They've already got the cosmic love of God fully and completely. They just need to wake up to it more and more. I mean, Paul's like, look at your lives and world. Our God provides more than we even know we need. Often before we realize that we even need it. He's already given his infinite love to you, not because we groveled or convinced him to, but simply because that's who he is. This is a God who is infinitely generous as a creator, who is committed to seeking the good of what he's created, no matter what, whose agape love is at the foundation of all things. It exists, this place, because he wills it so. Out of love, are y'all tracking with me? Paul says that's who's at work within creation and you. That's a God you can trust regardless of your circumstances. And for Paul, that's the starting point for all transformation, all change, which, we're gonna discuss, which he's going to go on to describe over the second half of Ephesians, where he lays out what it looks like to embrace this love and to turn our will and our life over to a God that it defines. That's for next week. No, no, for today, I want to just sit with this vision of the universe because for me it's stunning, and honestly, it kind of challenges me in some major ways. You see, I am a thinker. I'm a person who lives up here. Anyone else? I tend to engage my world primarily through my brain, through knowing stuff about it. Which is good. I think there's many a time so that is the most important and most valuable way to engage parts of this creation. But simultaneously, this prayer reminds me that thinking isn't the only form of knowing. That some truths transcend head knowledge and can only be known in our hearts, in our guts. Truths like this one, that we live in a universe saturated in divine Love, which is easy to shrug off as sappy emotionalism, but that's that. I think that would be a mistake because imagine how this Ephesian community was tempted to understand their universe in the Roman Empire. A second generation of Christians, they lived in this time where the church was beginning to be persecuted, where those who had converted them and who had raised them up were being martyred one by one by one, by the Roman Empire, Peter, John, James, even Paul, not long after this letter is finished. And as their friends and their leaders were killed by the machines of empire, they looked around and they saw everything but Christian triumphalism. They saw coins marked with Caesar, huge pagan temples like the Temple of Artemis, symbols of Roman power on every street corner all while they huddled together, not in these monstrous buildings, but in these scared, poor, marginalized communities that met in hidden house churches. And in that, do you think it was easy for them to believe that Jesus was king, that God's love defined their reality? Do you think it was easy for them to look out at that landscape and assume that love, not power, Violence, brutality, greed, oppression would rule the day in the story of their world. Y'all, it must have taken extraordinary strength to remain loving, kind, compassionate, faithful in the midst of such a world. Y'all, that's what this prayer is for. It's for the prisoners and the martyrs, the broken in the mourning, for anyone whose life has gotten shattered. And it needs mending by a power greater than themselves because they have tried with all their might to fix it and they just can't. It's a prayer that reminds us that regardless of our circumstances, of the tumult swirling around us, of our suffering and our longing for a better world, that regardless of what false gods and Caesars may say, the core of our reality is not defined by chaos, despair, darkness, fear, defeat, but rather the glorious, victorious, available, present, strong, infinite, agape love of our creator God. Paul reminds scared and broken people, you are rooted in Christ, the bedrock of reality, and he loves you infinitely because you exist. That's it. And y'all, that's anything but hollow emotionalism. I need that message. Y'all, I find it so hard to walk this American landscape and believe that love is the foundation of this place. And I don't think I'm alone. I think many of us hold a story about the universe that says it's founded on anything but love, that it's founded on hate, fear, scarcity, greed, emptiness, nihilism, believing that God's love, not those things, defines our world is as hard of a task as it comes, even on a good day much less when I look out in the face of chaos and war, when every commercial (laughs) screams that my value is earned, that I'm incomplete, until I find fullness in buying whatever the next object some corporation tells me I need is. When every voice pushes me towards a worldview that tells me that my universe is defined by scarcity, not generosity, not abundance, and competition, not unity, Violence, not peace. Whispering that I'll never have enough and I'll always need more and that the good life is living in comparison to my neighbor while always wanting what I do not have. Am I preaching yet? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? And y'all, that's poison. It just makes us sick. And it's fundamentally not the reality of our universe that was revealed through Christ Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. No, in Jesus, our universe's story was revealed to be under the direction of an infinitely wise, generous, and loving God who in trust we can know is always present and working in us. For Paul, Jesus revealed a God whose agape love saturates every atom in this universe. You go to the farthest star and guess what you'll find? The radical, sustaining love of God. Go to the ant in your backyard, the sunrise, the laughter of your kid, the breeze on your face, your very breath. And guess what you're going to find? Sustaining and continuing each of those things. The radical, infinite, agape love of God. Y'all, that's a love we can find and let transform every part of our lives. Through a simple daily willingness to let God's Spirit move us from our heads to our hearts, to slow down, get quiet, and discover and become aware of what's already true, to tap into this power greater than ourselves and grow in experiencing that love that we are already rooted in. All for the purpose of letting God change us into greater conduits into this world, and that is good news. Through a daily commitment to experiencing and growing further into that reality, y'all, that can change everything. Through that, we can on a daily basis fall into the love of God underlying all things. We can experience the inner strengthening that's required to turn the other cheek, to give generously, to extend grace, to have mercy, to show compassion, to serve the least, the last, and the lost, to have hope in the darkness, to heal from the trauma and the brokenness of our lives, to love our enemy as ourselves, no matter the circumstance. And that is what our world needs. Y'all, if you do that, then you have discovered the true purpose of this Christian life. So, do you believe that you live in a love-soaked universe? That Christ declared his love victorious? Are you living into that truth? But above all, do you know in your bones, in your gut that you can't make Christ love you one iota more or less because he's already done so infinitely with the fullness of the agape love of God. And that love alone holds the ultimate word on your life. Amen? Amen. Let's worship.